Hey everyone, welcome to Detoxicity, a show about progressive masculinity. My name is Mike Joseph, and I thank you for listening. Hopefully you enjoy what you hear. If you do, I humbly ask that you leave us a rating or a comment on whichever platform you are using to listen. Additionally, feel free to subscribe and follow me on social media. Detox Pod Guy on Instagram and Tiz Mike Joseph on Twitter. If you'd like to offer feedback, suggest a guest, or be a guest yourself, reach out to me on socials or via email, detoxpod at gmail.com. Enjoy the episode. I also want to take this opportunity to wish a happy Pride Month to all of the folks out there who identify as LGBTQIA+. I've had a lot of musicians as guests on this show. I've had a few mental health professionals as guests on this show. But here's the first, a professional musician who is also a licensed therapist. I got to know William Fitzsimmons through Staying in Tune, a web series I host with the mental health charity Sound Mind Live. We got along so well, and William's story was so interesting that I had to extend our conversation and give him a chat for detoxicity. I had to know what the cause of this odd kind of career arc was. I found out much more. William is a sensitive soul who's still struggling with a bit of some of those old masculine tropes. Over the next hour or so, you'll find out how he made his way through childhood bullying being a child of a divorce who himself has been divorced twice, and you'll also find out how much he loves his then-fiancé and now-wife. Even though it was just the second time William, William and I conversed, we got along like old buddies. I hope you feel the humor and warmth in this conversation. Here's William. Hey guys, this is William Fitzsimmons, songwriter and former therapist. I, every time I hear that and read it, it's so odd to me and it shouldn't be yeah no no it i've never met anybody that does the exact same thing i do have a niche in that regard which is kind of cool almost everybody that writes songs is performing some kind of therapy anyways whether they know it or not but i have that i guess the only difference is i have a hundred grand of student debt <laughs> to back it up so take that, other artists. <laughs> <laughs> so what came first? Were you songwriter or therapist? For, or Which came first in your head as something that you wanted to do? It was kind of therapy. I mean, music was always there. If I said it was music, it would be like saying that I decided that I was going to be bald, maybe. Like nature already had that written in the cards. I grew up in this environment where it was just everywhere. And I can't overstate that. I think sometimes people think that when I say that, I remember that early on, I would read comments. And I even heard from a buddy of mine that was my first booking agent overseas, where he was like, yeah, you might want to tone down some of the rhetoric of like your parents being disabled and the therapy stuff, because people aren't believing it. Like people are thinking that it's, it's bullshit. And I was like, okay I, I, it's it's your truth that's what i mean i was kind of like I, I was like i can i mean i i could i guess i'll post some pictures with my dad where he's like running into a wall or something because he can't see i didn't really know how to take that but yeah music was just there so the the idea of doing it as a career was sort of silly because I was like well I'm already doing it it was really the biggest part of my life I had other interests like I was really into sports still am I love sci-fi I, I had a lot of other hobbies but even at a pretty young age I was pretty obsessed with music with songwriting with production therapy is kind of similar I think being raised in a home where my mother was, I don't, I don't want to say she was into psychology, but she was very open to her children being able to have whatever emotions they needed to have. She wasn't perfect, but she was better than a lot of other parents I've seen at just giving their children the freedom to have feelings. And so I think that attracted me to the idea of getting into a career where I could just live in feelings all the time. So to take 10 minutes to answer your one very good but simple question, I think therapy came first in terms of I could see myself doing this for the rest of my life. Something about it was so beautiful and it made sense to who I was. I felt like I could help people, but I could also kind of help myself a lot. That was a part of it. I, that's a part of it for a lot of therapists. A lot of people don't talk about that, but most people that go into a helping profession are doing it 
because either it's helped them before or they know they can kind of continue to help them. It seems pretty logical. Mm -hmm. One thing, and I guess you kind of even said it, that unifies songwriting and psychology mm -hmm. is that they both find people digging into their feelings. Is that something you've always been comfortable with, kind of like getting inside yourself and trying to parse out what's going on in your head? Yeah, <clears throat> it's a good question, Mike. I, yeah, I was loved. I love feelings. Like, I love emotions. I, I love crying. I really do. It's the release I get from it is so incredible. I probably cry more days than I don't. Wow. Okay. You know, and I, I don't fight it. Like, I'm not saying if, yeah, if I'm like in a meeting or something, I'm not trying to cry, but watching a, a movie or a, I mean, a lot of the things have happened, like watching, you know, the election results come in or, you know, January 6th, uh, when the insurrection happened, like I was weeping because it was awful. It was this horrible thing to watch, you know, so I'm, I don't, I don't tend to fight back those feelings because I know there's something kind of cleansing that happens even like on a, on a neurological level, you're exercising some neurotransmitters that need to need to kind of flow through, you know, don't put up the drawbridge, like let that stuff flow out. Otherwise it gets really blocked up. So yeah, emotions have always been wonderful. The, the negative side of that coin as you know, my friends and my, my fiance will tell you is that sometimes I go into the deep side of the pool on the negative emotions. And I'm okay with living in that probably a little bit too much. I remember my first wife saying, this is great that you're writing about our divorce, but do you really want to sing these songs for the next couple years or 10 years or 20 years, you know? And she had a good point. And my, my answer at that would be yes. In general, I, I, I'm okay with going back there because there's, there's good and bad memories, but there's also lessons to be learned. But yeah, it can go a little bit too deep sometimes. Yeah. Well, is it too deep or is it just too deep for some people? Mm. Hmm. I mean, if you go through a breakup, how long should you listen to, I'm trying to think of like a great, like Blood on the Tracks. Bob Dylan, like amazing, probably, you know, the best maybe breakup record ever. Like, is there a time limit on that? Like if you listen to it for one week, is that good? But then if you listen to it for a month, is that bad? Any good therapist will tell you there's no timeline for grief, right? We used to think it was linear denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance, Those sure. are Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's stages of, of grief. Now we know it's not linear, it's cyclical, but you can almost have some acceptance on day one and then go all the way back to denial a month out, you know, and there's no timeline. I mean, the, what's funny is that like the DSM, the, uh, you know, the Bible of, of psychotherapy, I think the last time I read it, it was like six months is how long they give you to grieve before it's defined as a type of depression. And I always thought that was really funny that they, they put like a time on it. It was like, okay, so if I grieve for like five months and 30 days, I'm just grieving. But then if I grieve one more day, then, then I have like, and you have, yeah, yeah. And <laughs> I'm dealing it's with a, a mental health issue. So that, that was kind of silly, but there have to be sort of markers for these things. I think it probably depends on the person in the situation. You know, I mean, I still, I still grieve parts of my parents' divorce and that was 30 years ago. So I don't know. I, I think, you know, where you're at, like, like be really clear when I'm reaching for a beer, I know if I'm reaching for it because I just want a beer. And I know when I'm reaching for it because I feel like I need a beer as like some kind of self-medication. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we know in general when we're crossing the line for, for us. We might not always know it on a conscious level, but <laughs> sure. if you do the work, you know when you take one step too far into the deep end. So as a kid, and you and I are, are two years apart in age, mm -hmm. was being in touch with your emotions is not... At least, and where did you grow up? Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. For the record, I love Pittsburgh. <laughs> Amazing um, city. Amazing yeah. city. But not something that little boys are generally Ooh. associated with. <clears throat> so how was it being a, a little kid in the Midwest 
presumably in touch with your emotions at a very young age. Like I me, mean, when... I got my ass kicked. If that's what you're asking. <laughs> yeah, that was really a long way to ask. Did you get bullied a lot, William? I got I got my ass kicked, man. I was real heavy. And I was like athletic, but like not jockey, you know, maybe a little bit too into like Star Wars and books compared to my peers. You know, Pittsburgh is it's great city and, and it's changed a lot in the last several decades but it's still and especially then it was it's very blue collar it's very very sports oriented very like you know almost like you think of like the english like the stiff upper lip kind of thing where you you keep your nose down and you do your work and you don't cry you know you and i we talked about the yeah. as, as as you talk a lot it's kind of your thing is like the the toxic max masculinity and men not being able to express a full range of emotions in it, there were some contexts where I was able to do that, and I'm so grateful for that. Within my mother's family, I was allowed to be whoever I was. I was allowed to be artistic and nerdy and fat and <clears throat> dorky, you know. And I didn't, I mean, even like little things. There's something I try to explain to people like, I'm colorblind and my parents are blind. So you better believe when I went to school in the morning, I was not snatched. I think that's how my girlfriend says it. Like, oh, wait, that means fit. I don't get it. She's no, snatched means put together. Oh, like put, put together. Yeah, put together, yes. Put together, yeah. So I was not that, man. Like, it I was mean, like. Realistically, though, what 10-year-old is for styling? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure like Angelina Jolie's kids are. Well. I'm sure they're well put together, but. They're snatched. But whatever was the version of that at the time i wasn't it every single day getting on the bus was a nightmare because all i wanted to do was just be left alone and i would get on there and and it was like the bullying started like immediately and there was so many options i was pitching softballs to the bullies man you had my weight you had my clothes you had my glasses like taking my bible to school you know like all <laughs> Like I was just asking to please, I had a shirt on, so just please kick my ass. <laughs> pick one. <clears throat> yeah, like, yeah, like pick. Yeah, I was like, dude, I can't even make fun of you. There's too many options. <laughs> I don't even know what to do. I didn't fit in well. And now I can look back and say, thank God I didn't fit in well because I had to develop a lot of character and bravery a lot of like self-acceptance it's it's probably why i picked up a guitar i don't know maybe it's similar in a way like why iverson picked up the ba basketball because he was good at it and because he knew it would get him out of shit you know getting arrested at a bowling alley when he was a teenager when he was just there right and he was black but he actually didn't do anything he knew that if he could ball he could he could get out of that environment and that to me was a part of the guitar it was like a i never looked at it when i was 16 as like oh i'm going to get out of pittsburgh i'm going to travel the world i looked at it as this is going to enable me to go to this really beautiful place when i'm just playing the guitar i'm playing along with uh, Led Zeppelin or something I can in my head I can sort of escape to a place where I'm not just the nerdy band dork getting picked on all day at school you know and that was wonderful it really was I don't know if I would have made it without that escape that, that guitar it got me through some rough days I feel like most people that go through that kind of experience need something to kind of push them through to the other side yeah. So I'm appreciative uh, that the guitar was that for you. I don't remember what the hell it was for me. Uh, it might have just been music in general. But yeah. Uh, yeah. But going back to sort of your childhood, uh, you grew up in an, a pretty unique situation with parents who were blind and also then becoming a child of divorce. How did that affect you? Those are two both pretty powerful experiences right having and, and they're they're separate in general in my case they were definitely unified because that was just the dynamic of my family but being a child of divorce I think people try to normalize it a little bit too much right now 
there's a weird balance you have to strike. Like the the modal response of a child to any stimuli, be it positive or negative, is, is resilience, right? So children are much more elastic than adults are. A kid can go through a lot <clears throat> and they'll tend to be okay in the long term. That's what happens most of the time. Not always. I mean, there's some kids, they have one negative experience of childhood and it haunts them for the rest of their life. So I, I'm not talking about everyone. I'm saying on the average, the, the disability thing for many years, I tried to pretend like it wasn't a big deal. And there were definitely benefits that came out of it. My parents and I had to find other ways to connect that weren't related to visual things at all. Mm. Even a simple thing, you know, and again, I'll get emotional if I talk about it too much, but uh, I've never had eye contact with my parents. And, you know, eye contact is such a massively powerful thing. When I'm talking to my kids about something serious, I ask them to look at me, you know, because there's something about that connection. When think about sexuality, like there are moments when the most powerful part of eroticism is looking at the other person in the eyes. So not having that thing, my parents and I have had to find other ways and usually through communication, just through words, you know, but a physical touch, obviously too, where, you know, hugging and things like that. They both played a really big role. My parents getting divorced caused me to have some pretty significant abandonment issues that I think my therapist would tell you are, I'm probably going to be working on for the rest of my life. And that's okay. It just made me afraid. It made me think that nothing is safe and that people can kind of leave just like that. And there's a truth to that. And the disability thing, more than anything, it just made me feel different. I just felt like I was like the, you know, the weird kid. But those were, you know, Anthony DeMello, one of my favorite writers, he might've mentioned the last time we talked, he, you know, he talks about the pain being like the opportunity for growth. And that when, when things are great, when you're experiencing pleasure, you're not, you're not changing, you're not growing. And that's okay too. But I mean, when things are awesome, I don't know that I've really learned much. You know, but so I, I was given these gifts, man. The, was that Mary Oliver quote, something like that? Somebody gave me a, a box of pain and I didn't realize until many years later that it was a gift. I've heard that before. Yeah. It's, it's true. I, you don't, God, you don't feel like it at the time, man. I mean, man, dude, when I, you know, my youngest daughter recently, she's not officially been diagnosed, but essentially she's, been diagnosed with having a, a sensory processing disorder mm -hmm. and it's it's you know it's not the kind of thing that it's not like a terminal disease or something so i don't want to overstate it but it's a thing <clears throat> it's a thing that will affect her life and and my life and her mother's life and you just have to deal with it it's reality and and right now it's hard because we're trying to figure out what that means and what to do but you show up you do the best you can and somehow it'll be okay that might sound naive, but I, I actually sincerely believe that, you know. I hear you there. So fast forwarding a little bit, going through all of these things that you've gone through, and you've been through, I would say, more than the average person, maybe. I, I don't maybe, know. What, maybe. Maybe. Yeah. You know, maybe not. How does all of that now affect the way you walk through life? You're, you're a child of divorce, and now you are a divorcee? Twice. Um, oh, Okay. Yeah. You know, and there you were, you know, bullied as a child, and now you have this psychological background, and, and like it's right. all this stuff, you can kind of almost draw like a linear thread, right? Different things. Do you see that? And, and how do you kind of deal with it? Man, that's well said, Mike. Yeah, I think, I think there's a there's a line. I really do think there's a direct, like, causal line between those childhood experiences and where I'm at right now, the good things and the bad things, right? Would I have still been twice divorced if my parents had not gotten divorced? I don't know. But it's reasonable to assume and research would indicate that children of divorce tend to have a higher divorce, right? You'd think it'd be the opposite, right? Because you yeah, think you'd, you you'd, wouldn't want to, yeah, you wouldn't want to go through yeah. that again. You, know, yeah. you wouldn't want to put children through whatever it might be. But the, these things have a real effect. To answer your question, I think more than anything, it's, it's encouraged me to be more accepting 
of reality and not try to control the universe around me. And again, this is only through like journaling and through therapy that I've realized this, that I've spent thousands and thousands of hours and monumental amounts of effort trying to control the universe, trying to be my own higher power, you might say in, you know, addiction work. And it hasn't worked. You know, I remember when my second marriage was falling apart, my wife, she had an affair with a friend of mine and somebody that I worked with. My initial response was, okay, we can fix this. Like, this is totally fine. I mean, I was hurt. <laughs> sure. My response wasn't, oh my God, how could you do this to me? And then going into what, what's going on or what's wrong with our marriage and, you know, these, what I would call more reasonable reactions to it. My reaction was we can fix this. And what was underneath that was me saying, I can control this. I can stop this from happening. I can make life exactly what I want it to be. And boy, did that make everything harder because I wasn't accepting reality. It's, it's stretched out the separation, it probably caused more harm to the, to the kids, you know, not that there's anything wrong with fighting for a relationship, but in my case, I wasn't looking at reality. The reality was it, it was, it was a very diseased marriage for years. And I was fighting for something that didn't even exist. So the more time I spend in reality, the, the more peace I have. My life isn't necessarily better on the outside for it, but I'm able to deal with it better. I mean, that took me 40 years. It took me 40 years to get to that place and I'm still working on it. I think, again, I can only speak for myself. Things get easier when you realize how little control yeah. you, you have over things. And I, I don't know that possession in relationships gets talked about I, that I've discussed it much mm. as part of this podcast at all, but that is something that is very intriguing to me as a single person wanting intrigued by the idea of partnership, mm -hmm. but also realizing over the past couple of years that the idea of someone thinking that they can control me is something mm. that really gives me the heebies. Yeah. And as a result of that, I've sort of changed the way that I do relationships in a lot of ways, like I'm non-monogamous. One thing I, I, I really try to push forward and it takes a lot of retraining in my head is kind of the partnership, not ownership model. Yeah. But I also think that just as humans, we have this thing in our head where we see the way we want things to go. And it's not, not solely inclusive of relationships. And yeah. then we kind of freak out when they don't go our way. <laughs> And then don't realize, like, we never had control over this shit in the first place. You had the illusion of the control. And that, that feels like control. When I thought that everything was fine, that I had, I had two great kids, and I had a pretty wife, and I had a good career and a nice house, that was like it. And yet, what I failed to realize at the time was that Every single one of those things, and this will get a little bit depressing and a little bit existential. Every single one of those things could be taken away in less than a second, in less than a fucking second. Somebody could die. Career could go down the shitter. House could go up in flames. Marriage could end. Like there's no, <laughs> there's <clears throat> one, one of the things that, my therapist and I have worked on most, and I'm sorry to keep bringing it up, but I, no. I do love, I love therapy so much. And we, we've worked together for like over three years now. So I've, you know, it's a good, it's a good relationship. I assume she can probably put a down payment on a, on a house, a, a pretty night, or at least a great car, <laughs> at least an awesome car, man. Maybe, maybe a Lexus, maybe not a house, but like a Lexus <laughs> at least, you know, but she's earned it, man. She's earned it. The, the thing that she's tried to get me to realize and I fight it a lot, is that there is no safety. And that's okay. And that that's a really hard one for me to swallow that that pill is like the size of Jupiter for me. Because I just want 
safety. I, I want to go back in time and know that dad's not going to leave. I want to go back in time and make the affair not happen or things like that. But the the better place to get to is not to where you're only happy whenever things are going your way. It's that you're fine regardless of what's happening around you. That's so easier said than done. But I do think it's possible because people have done it. You know, this is Viktor Frankl, the great, he wrote Man's Search for Meaning, invented logotherapy, post-Freudian type of therapy. Frankl was a Holocaust survivor and he was a physician and he got put in a couple different camps. I believe he was in Auschwitz for a time. And he wrote a book that was all about finding meaning. And I mean, if there's ever someone that could be listened to about that, it would be someone who literally was in a concentration camp, you know, a Jewish person during the war, during the second war. <clears throat> and, you know, Frankel makes an argument that you can't really say, well, I did the best I could. And just because I didn't act well, you can't really judge me for it his point is that he observed people that refused even under the most horrific life and death situations they refused to give up their dignity their love of fellow humans and we kind of have to use that as a as a standard it's a really challenging book to read and that idea is really hard because at some point your best is okay that's all you do need to do but whenever I use that as a yardstick, if I just use like, I'm doing better than that guy, <laughs> you know, I don't want that. I want to get to a point where Franco was, where he was staring at death. You know, he talked about some of the people, sorry, this is depressing, but he talked about that. There were, apologize. there were, there were people that literally would sing on the way to the chamber to the gas chamber. They would be singing in Hebrew. They'd be singing praise songs. And they refused to sacrifice their dignity and their power, even in that moment, even though they knew they were walking to their death. And it's like, you know what? You can't, ta you can't take this from me. Go ahead. Take my life. Go ahead, asshole. I am still a spirit. I'm a, currently, I'm still a body and I can sing. You know, really moving picture he paints in that. That's my goal. Not there yet. I might never be there, but that's what that's what I want. That's what I want to get to. That's a good place to get to. There's a lot to be said for not letting life break you. Right, right. Because I think in a lot of ways, life is, unless you have a certain frame of mind, life is designed to potentially break you. It is. It is. It's great at it. I, the universe doesn't give a shit. It doesn't. Sometimes it'll it'll fucking you know hand you 50 bucks and sometimes it'll punch you in the dick yeah <laughs> like it doesn't care it just doesn't care but i'm okay with that once i accepted that things got better not externally actually externally things got worse but all of a sudden i was okay with it you know the there's too much you know the orchestra is too big and you i don't want to miss any of it and sometimes the notes are like, they're so ugly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like sometimes the tuba, it's just like, it hits like an E flat. <laughs> you know, we're playing, everybody else is playing an F. And it sounds so God awful. And it makes me feel bad. But <clears throat> if I quit right then, then I'm going to miss like the, dude, the violin's about to come in, man. And that violin is going to be fucking insane. You know, I don't want to miss the violin. And there might be some surprise part you don't know about that's going to blow you away. There always has been. There really has, man. The, this thing, I never I never wanted to be a father. And this is something I, I don't say this to my kids. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I don't sit them down and talk about, you know, your dad never wanted you guys. No, I never, that was never like a dream of mine is what I mean. But it has brought so much beauty into my life it challenged me. I had to change. If I was the same person I was 10 years ago, I'd be a really shitty dad. And I'm not saying I'm an amazing dad, but that has spread out into other areas too. You know, I feel like that's made me a better musician, a better steward of my friendships and other relationships and stuff. The surprises that come are sometimes that's the best part. So uh, from a performing 
from a musicianship aspect, I guess, loading in the mental health part, do you find yourself with fans maybe having to play therapist in addition to? Oh, yeah. Are you cool with that? I'm cool with it. As long as, you know, the, the tricky part is, and again, this just, this might sound shitty, but it comes from my training, is that there are liability issues that come you know there, there's very specific laws put in place that are uh, made to protect that relationship and specifically the client right now a, a kind of a hot button issue in therapy is therapists are technically licensed only in specific states yep. <clears throat> and right now because of the pandemic a lot of people are going to online therapy to do it and there's some loopholes around that, but it's a little bit dangerous. If I go into like better health or one of the online platforms, they, and again, the big ones, I'm sure they've figured all of it out and it's no big deal. But if I have a therapist that's in New York city and I'm in middle of Illinois, you know, the question then becomes, well, what happens if I'm in a crisis and they don't have the ability to access my local network, that kind of thing. So right. I, I have to toe the line a little bit gently and not just not to protect myself from like a lawsuit. That's not what I'm thinking of when I'm talking to someone. It's more the pragmatic aspect of like, I, I can't, I, I can't go on this full journey with you, you know, because you and I actually aren't not you, but you know, you, the person I'm talking to, we are not in an actual therapeutic relationship. I love it when people reach out to me and they give me the encouragement that I am affecting their life in a therapeutic way. And I, I try to do my best to respond to those people and to be open to all that. I just want to be careful that I'm not dragging them along, making them feel like I can do something for them that would be better done by an actual practicing professional. But most of the time, I think people get that and they just want to express the gratitude for the connection that's there. It, it has never been really that much of a, of an issue. If I could, I honestly, Mike, I wish I could help people more with that because I still have that desire. One of my favorite things is when someone, when someone is vulnerable with me, like maybe I like it a little bit too much, you know, <clears throat> but like that's that moment. It's that moment when a friend is like, Hey man, I'm not doing good. Part of it's ego, but you're like, oh shit, tell me about it. Like, I love you. Let me help you. Let me walk. I've walked through the same thing you did. Let me be here for you. I find meaning. I find value in that. And I, I just have to be careful. Sometimes I push a little bit too hard. I, you know, I try to make my friends and my girlfriend kind of, or my kids like, how do you, how do you feel about that though? <laughs> They're like, Typical I don't know. I feel this line. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Oh, no, I use all the, I use all the basic bitch lines, dude. Yeah. You have to be careful too, because like we've talked about before, some people have, they require different parts of the pool for healing. You know, some people need the deep end. Some people are fine with the shallow end and you have to just meet people where they are. You can't force them along. If there was one thing about you that you, personality wise, that you would change right this second, what would it be? Oh my God. I love that question. Mike. <laughs> I love that question so much. Wow. I mean, the, the, I'll just say the first couple of things that came to mind. One was the thing I touched on before about the control element. I wish that I had less of a desire to control my life, its circumstances and the people around me. And two, I wish I wasn't so damn sensitive. I wish I didn't personalize things all the time. Speaking my language, bro. If so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think you and I are similar in that way. I think we're emotional creatures. And I think that the flip side of the coin is that we, you know, we love well, but we're easily hurt too. And so even little things like if somebody says something that I think to a lot of people would not be a big deal to me, I take it really personally. And I can perseverate over it for hours or days or weeks even sometimes. And I just wish I was better at letting shit go. That's the, that's the one thing. But, but again, maybe if I was like that, maybe I also wouldn't be the dad that I am or the writer that I am or the friend or the lover, whatever it might be. So 
maybe that's a part of the package that I have to accept. If, yeah, if you take away that, you also take away the good parts of it. Tell me how to get there. I, and this has been for me, something that's since childhood. Yeah. So sensitive. And I think when I was young and maybe there's still a part of this I carry with me, mm. it was viewed as a negative, like an unmanly for sure way to feel for sure and now i think people people think it but they're less apt to say it to me because they might get a reaction that they don't yeah. want but i i do get mike you're taking this too seriously or, or mike you're you're reacting a little too strongly to this it's not a big deal and so there's a part of me that would like to be less sensitive mm -hmm. but like you said at the same time i'm like well if i wasn't sensitive or an, an empathetic person all of this good stuff, stuff that I like about me wouldn't probably not. Yeah. You'd be losing some of the best Mike parts. And that's the thing. I did not to say that you can't work on it. One thing that's been helpful for me is learning how to not make assumptions <clears throat> about other people and, and what their intentions are. Cause that's a big part of my sensitivity is that like if recent experience I'll give tried to try to kiss my fiance and she didn't want me to because my breath smelled like beer. I won't go in the whole backstory, but that was kind of like that. It was a bit of a trigger kind of thing for me where I was like, it felt really rejecting where it was like, and my mind immediately went to like, she doesn't want to kiss me. She doesn't want to have sex with me. She doesn't, she doesn't want to be with me. And it's like, motherfucker, she just didn't like the smell of beer. <laughs> um, you need to calm down a little bit. So right. that's actually, and th this comes uh, from a school called rational emotive therapy. It was kind of an early form of cognitive behavioral therapy that you confront irrational beliefs with very stern reality-based contradictions. So in that situation, the irrational belief is my girlfriend doesn't care about me anymore. And I confront that belief with a very stern, like write it, and sometimes you even say it out loud, you write it down, whatever. It's a, that's, you have no evidence to support that. She doesn't like the smell of beer. If you brush your teeth right now, she'll probably want to kiss you. Even if she doesn't, she kissed you an hour ago. She's probably going to kiss you tomorrow. So you have no evidence to support this, this idea. And th those things seem so simple to people. I remember a friend in college was like, the reason I hate psychology is because it's common sense. <laughs> it's <laughs> true. It is true. Mike, it's absolutely true. And I didn't have an argument to him then, but what I would say now to him is, yes, it is. Most people aren't using it. So when I actually started to do this stuff and I would actually say this shit, I still do this. I'll probably do it later today at some point. If I just say it out loud, if, if somebody cuts me off on the road, you know, I used to have pretty bad road rage. Now I'll say, you know what? I don't know what that person's going through. I might still get mad. It doesn't feel good. It's dangerous. You know, maybe they're having a really hard day. Maybe they didn't see me. Me jumping to the conclusion of that person's an asshole. I'm going to speed up. I'm going to flick them off. I'm going to get in some, you know, encounter with them. It doesn't help me. doesn't help them. You know, it's not about being a pushover either. It's again, it's just, it's settling into reality and letting reality kind of guide where you're at that anyways, those things have, they have actually helped my sensitivity a lot to now to, to get to the point now where there's some stuff that would have absolutely destroyed me that happens. And now when it happens, it maybe ruins a couple hours instead of a week. And that's a man, that's a big game. That's a huge step. Yeah, absolutely. Do you find yourself hitting that like doomsday prophecy wall? Like the situation you explained with your girlfriend where yeah. she's like, dude, you have beer on your breath. It's gross to she doesn't love me anymore. Do you find yourself making that leap on a regular basis? That's my default. Yeah, that's my default, especially when things aren't great. Like, let's say there's a global pandemic going on. Imagine. And I'm, <laughs> and I'm not able to do my career. I'm not able to take my kids to the places they usually love to go and all these things. Yeah, in times of stress, I'll make those leaps a lot more often. But the cool thing is the, 
the more I practice the cognitive behavioral stuff, the longer that that line becomes. So now I might jump instead of going from like, she doesn't love me anymore. I might jump from like, oh, she's not attracted to me right now. It's still not necessarily real, a realistic belief, but it's, it's not the full thing. And it's a lot easier to come back from that than it is to when you go to, you know, there's lots of different words that they use now, you know, catastrophizing and all or nothingism, all that stuff. You know, that's my, like, that's the bread and butter of how I've lived, you know, and boy, the, the effect that that one small thing has had just starting to challenge some of those beliefs, it's, it is, it's changed my day-to-day -day life in a really big, powerful way. They're, the defaults will always be there, man. I don't want to say people are too hopeful. Sometimes they think that healing uh, is sort of a, a discrete variable, that it's an all or nothing, like black and white thing. Healing is a process. It's a journey. And if you make one little step forward, that's fucking huge. And you can enjoy that. You can enjoy those results. If, if I let go one little thing about my last divorce, doesn't seem like a lot, but it, it it's changes everything, you know, and you can celebrate that stuff. You don't, it doesn't have to be, I mean, shit, when's any, when are we ever healed? fully man maybe you and i feel like we got more to deal with than some other people but nobody's done no i mother I, Teresa was still working man i guarantee it when she was on her deathbed she was still working on some shit i mean you have to get to a place where you're cool with that yes yeah so you're talking about your fiance you're going for it for a third time william yeah. <laughs> i had a friend tell me that was stupid he was I, like bro you tried it twice. Good on you. It didn't work. Like, what are you doing? I don't think it's stupid. I, I think well. <laughs> you come in with a, a greater understanding of what your needs are, hopefully. Sure. And, you know, you're able to, to kind of talk it through. I mean, communication is the hallmark of every relationship in existence. Yes, sir. But what is it about, about this lady that's got you wanting to go with it for a third time? Well, part of it was that I was actually okay with not ever being in a relationship again. I, I, I can legitimately say I got to that point. I was single for a while, and then I started to date again. And in that dating, I attempted to be casual which sounds like you're being a cad or something but I, I think I was just I just wanted to see what that was like I had never actually done that I know I got married to the first girl that I ever kissed that was my first marriage and my second marriage happened pretty quickly after the first one wow you know? okay let, let me put it this way by the time I was married for the second time I I had married two-thirds of the people that I had ever slept with Wow. Which is, it's either pathetic or impressive, depending on how you want to look at it. <laughs> Everybody's different, man. Everybody's different, my man. Everybody's different. So I was real different. But yeah, I, don't, I make a joke about that. But it's neither good nor bad. It's just what it was. But I, I, wanted to, I wanted to try it. I'd never just like been a single dude and just went on like dates with, a, okay, here's one person. I'm, it's Monday. I'll go and date with somebody on Thursday. Something yeah. different, you know. Yeah. And I did that for a while and it was okay. I wasn't great at it because for me personally, there was something about the commitment of one person that allowed me to enjoy a type of intimacy that I think I like. Very simply put, I'm not saying right or wrong at all. I'm not going to use those words because I don't think they're relevant. But for me, that was the type of intimacy that I liked knowing that there was some element of exclusivity there. And I, I mean, part of it too, is that I got really exhausted trying to keep all of it together. It's a lot of work. It, yeah. it actually, it literally got exhausting. And there wasn't like 50 girls or something. I'm not <laughs> saying that, but it got exhausting. And I wanted the, I wanted a closeness with somebody. So when, when I met Samantha, I was in that mindset where I was like, Hey, just FYI, like, I, I, I like you a lot. I think you're amazing, but I'm not looking for anything like super serious here. And she was like, cool, no worries. And like, you know, meanwhile, you know, three months later, I'm like madly in love with her. You know, <laughs> for me, it was, she was, she is the most different person 
that I've ever met. I never dated somebody that was so independent. Somebody that actually just doesn't need me at all. She, she just doesn't. Uh, it's like, I can't stress this enough. <laughs> See, I find that so cool. Awesome. That's like my aspirational yeah. relationship. Yeah. Like, you know, someone that's not codependent that's like, yo, I can do my thing. I choose Dude. to spend my time with you. You said it. I didn't know that that's what I needed because most of the relationships that I had been in before had a real healthy dose of codependency. You know, I misread the recipe and it said like, you know, a teaspoon and I put in like 30 cups of <laughs> codependency in it. And like, I fucked the recipe up. And, if, and, if, and of course it didn't work because codependency, it, it can't work. You're not there for yourself and you're not there for the other person. You're there for the dynamic that's happening. So Sam was different <clears throat> because she didn't need me. She was different because she had her own, her own, on top of just being independent, she also has her own life, her own career aspirations, her own, you name it. And it was more of being with her is more like an invitation to getting to be a part of her life and her wanting to be a part of mine. But it's not this all encompassing thing that I thought it was supposed to be. I thought love meant you literally became the same person. This came from my upbringing, right? Where this like two become one idea. There's something beautiful and there is something about that that I think is real, but I misunderstood it to mean in a literal sense that this person had to believe, think, and act in every way that was consistent with how I wanted them to be. She's so far from that. It's ridiculous. She doesn't like my music. We don't really like the same movies. We don't like the same books. And yet I've never enjoyed just sitting and either talking or not talking with anyone more than her. Oh, it's it's so it's really simple, you know. It's interesting, isn't it? It is. It it y'all don't like the same things. What do y'all talk about? I don't know. We just have sex a lot. No, no, that's you know what we talk about each other's lives, and we talk about each other's interests. And I've learned, you know, so she's a professional dancer, and she has a small business as well on the side. And she's very successful at both. And I love, and she's lived a very different life than I have, like very different. The life of a professional dancer living in New York City is, it's a little bit wild. You know what I mean? But no matter what, you know, you're talking ballet, jazz, tap, like it doesn't really matter. There's, sure. there's, you know, it's a, it's a kind of a wild life and I know nothing about it. And oh my God, sometimes I feel like I'm interviewing her. And she gets annoyed, but I literally, I'm so fascinated by it because I don't know anything about it. And I think for both of us, that's been kind of fun in that we don't have the normal overlap that we do have some, we, but we both love law and order SUV or what? SVU as who does it. That's what yes. I'm saying. Special intelligence. <laughs> so like we have these like silly things or there'll be, what's the one girl trip or girls trip girls trip the movie. Yeah, with Queen Latifah, yeah. Jada Pickett-Smith, Tiffany Haddish. Tiffany Haddish, like, yeah. I know this won't make any sense, but I love that movie. Why doesn't it? I mean... <laughs> it's so... Well, because it's like a girl's buddy comedy. I'm not supposed to be the guy that's like getting down on that movie, but it's fucking amazing, dude. It's humor so is good. humor, man. Humor is humor, exactly. But like... We watched that together. It was on twice in a row and we just watched it both times. Like we just were like, yep, we're watching this again. Let's order some food, you know? I love that. So it's stuff like that where, you know, old me, I might've looked at that and been like, shit, I'm a, I'm a man. I'm not watching that. I'm not watching that shit. There's a put on, there's gotta be a world strongest man. I want to see some motherfucker lift a car over his head, right. you know, but who gives a shit? I could either pretend like, I'm too manly for this shit, whatever that means. Or I right. could sit there with the most beautiful woman I've ever seen and laugh at an amazing movie together. I won, man. Yeah. Is that a hump that you have to get over still? The whole, I can't yeah. watch this or I can't listen to this. Or for I sure. For sure. For sure. For sure. <laughs> so much. Yeah, because I think for like a, a, for a straight guy, 
like me and again I, I can't speak on it for what it's like for you know a trans woman or for a gay guy for you know whatever but for me as a as a straight male when i'm around a beautiful woman the peacock feathers start to come up <clears throat> still and i'm like 42 i'm dad as fuck I'm, you know i got <laughs> new balance on uh, you know i'd like i'm gonna go talk about the you know the weather and the lawn care with my neighbor in five minutes <laughs> you know what i mean i'm super that like middle-aged white dude but that's that's never helped me the peacock things never helped me the thing the reason why she's attracted to me i think is because now i'm comfortable and confident in who i am it's tricky though because you get in your head man because you might know about some of their exes you know or her two favorite hollywood her like hall passes or whatever they are uh -huh. which is like kind of dangerous when you're dating someone that's a professional dancer because you're like wait you're probably gonna meet, you could meet these people this is a bad fucking idea <laughs> like okay my hall pass is like the girl that lives next door how about that you know now we're gonna do that no it's jason momoa and the rock and she said that and i was like i was like okay all right okay those guys are 800 pounds bigger than me <laughs> i mean those so are first of all amazing hall passes so shout out to your fiance oh for sure oh no she's got it <laughs> No, she's got it down. I know, and I'm looking at that. And I'm like, I don't blame you. Those guys are incredible. Right. Yeah. I'm not even mad. But, you know, that that's like an invitation, even in that moment, it's an invitation for me by the universe to say, all right, William, where are you at with yourself? You know what I mean? Are you okay with who you are? And the truth is, Mike, it's not a pleasant reality, but if at some point she decides she doesn't want to be with me, I would be devastated, but I'd be okay. I'm going to survive it, man. That's what I've learned from the divorces, from having kids, from all of it. Like John Lennon said it, right? He said, it'll be okay in the end. If it's not okay, it's not the end. Right. Right. So that's it. That's a, that's a great way to think. And I, I understand and appreciate that it takes a lot of, time to get there. Some people never get there. I mean, it took me a long time to, to, to get to a point where I'm like, you know, and it, I think it is a prideful, manly thing. And speaking to my experience to get from, well, if they look at somebody, then that means they, you know, are attracted to somebody that means they don't want me to, right. I mean, I'm, I'm honestly, and obviously this is different for everybody else, but I'm at a point now where, you know, if I'm dating somebody, and they sleep with somebody else. I'm like, that doesn't necessarily mean if we have a communicative, honest right. relationship that they want me any less. Right. It just, you know? dude, it just doesn't. Yeah. It just doesn't mean that. Yeah. That's a hard, I think getting to that place is hard. It, what's funny is how hypocritical that I've been for most of my life about that idea where I would get jealous if, you know, a girlfriend or somebody I was on a date with, so if they would look at somebody else or they would think somebody else was attractive, I would get like real butthurt about that. Meanwhile, I'm like scanning the room for potential mates, like as we speak. Yep. And I had to, I had to kind of accept that. And again, just those, that, that constant doses of reality, like she's a human being. She has a biological system put in place for her to be attracted to certain males or females, whatever it might be. Right. And just because I, I, I'm just repeating what you said, because it was so good. But you know, when she if she sees a cute guy at the gym, and she thinks he's cute, that what does that have to do with me? Zero, right? Not a damn so, thing. And if I'm getting upset about that, what's going on? with me. Now, I'm not saying if I'm in a monogamous committed relationship and she's making out with other guys. Yeah, different that's story. a different, different yeah. issue. But like you said, communication, honesty, if these things are in place, whatever the rules are in that relationship, you know, most of the time, if I get upset, there's something going on with me. That's the truth. It's not always the case, but usually I would say like 80 to 90% of the time, if I'm getting upset, there's something inside me that needs to be dealt with, even though my 
initial reaction is to point the finger at somebody else. Sure. But it's like, dude, no, 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 no. You got some work to do. Let's sit down with the journal. You nice. know, <laughs> nice. let's, nice. let's open it up. Let's sit down and write for 20 minutes. Let's see what comes out. And usually that something happens, you know, I'll figure out something. That's what's up. I got to ask one last question. Mm -hmm. And you all also, you actually kind of uh, gave me an answer already. I was thinking about the William Fitzsimmons uniform. Oh yeah. Because oh, yeah. every time I see you, whether it's uh, on your, uh, you know, when you're doing an IG live, you, yeah. it's like the, you know, the plaid shirt and the, and the, and the skull cap oh, and yeah. like, you know, the jeans and like the lace up boots or, you know, whatever. Sure. So explain the William Fitzsimmons uniform. I mean, sometimes it's a jumpsuit. I've gotten into jumpsuits the last several really? years. Yeah. Jumpsuit, like think, overalls or like, you know. No, well, I, I did the overalls thing for a while, but I'm, I'm talking like full on coveralls. Oh wow! Like, right. like 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 Top Gun, or <laughs> or janitor, whichever way you want to look. At wow, that. It's like halfway between. You know what I think it is, man. I think I think that because I work in a profession where I'm not using my hands, and I'm not doing something physically laborious, and because I use phrases like physically laborious, <laughs> I think that it's my way of almost like playing dress up as if I am, you know, a lumberjack or a car mechanic or something, because I do, because I, I find those professions that where people are doing hard physical labor, I respect those a lot. I think they're really impressive and I'm grateful to do what I get to do, but I think it's almost like a little homage it's a little like playing dress up like if i was a kid and i wanted to be princess anna from frozen i'm gonna put on the dress i'm gonna put on the wig i think there's something to that where i get to feel a little more i don't want to say manly necessarily because I, I don't think it's just a masculine thing i think i get to feel a little bit more connected with something about those blue collar roots you know they're like my uncle's when my great great ancestors that were literally working in coal mines right. in Western Pennsylvania, <laughs> you know, yeah, I, mean, I don't know, maybe that's maybe that's a little strange, but no, I just, it's, you know, it's a good it's a good question. Him, yeah, every time I see, him, I'm like, this dude has an aesthetic. Yeah, and I, I mean, I'm I'm staying with it. I don't know <laughs> if it's in style. Apparently, Gen Zers are trying to kill skinny jeans. I don't know if you heard that. I, you know, as someone who was a, I used to be overweight, mm -hmm. uh, significantly overweight. And B, like I come from the hip hop era. So I didn't wear jeans that actually fit me until like eight years ago. Right. And, right. Right. And by that point, I had also, you know, lost a significant amount of weight and started yeah. working out and doing all this stuff. And I was like, I like the way these things look. So yeah. I'm not giving up on the skinny jeans thing. Dude, I'm not, I'm not or, selling my jeans. Right. Fitted jeans, I should say, not skinny jeans. Well, right. But, right. Jeans yeah. that yeah gen z is trying to bring all like the mom gene thing can't back in it. like the, the old straight leg like 501s like it's 1920 oh, no. I can't i'm like do that. no dude like i barely have an ass <laughs> the only the only thing that's like helping me is the squats and those like five five 11s that's all i got man you know <laughs> mom jeans on dudes is just not like it's so that's <laughs> It's like, bro, what are you doing? Like, you know, like you look like you don't care. That's exactly what it is, which is kind of awesome in a way too. Yeah. yeah. And like, did somebody tell you, did somebody not tell you something before you walked out the house? Like, I, that, There was nobody, man. There was nobody. <laughs> or they tried and they didn't hear. They had the earbuds in. They didn't hear. Them. They were like, what? What? I got to go. But yeah, you told me about the new balances and I was like, okay, so he's not in full uniform today. No, I got, I got sweats. I got sweats and the tennies on, nice. you know, right now. Hey, Justin, you never know when you have to mow your lawn. You know what I mean? Or run. Or, <laughs> or well, run after the, run after the mailman. I'm yeah, not, I'm too, I'm, I'm too old to jog. Yeah. All right, dude. Well, this, this was good. Yeah, man. I love, I love talking to you, Mike. It's Likewise. Cool. Like I, so let's get it going, man. I want to, yeah, you know, I want everybody to be okay. As always, I want to thank William for his uh, time and honesty. Uh, what a great conversation. 
Like William, I want everybody to be okay. That is much easier said than done, but it's also easier to start with the people that you feel closest to and making sure that you check in on them on a regular basis. As humans, we often think we have the benefit of time, only for that to end up not being the case as much as we think. So again, much appreciation to William for his time, his energy, and his honesty, and his music. If you are listening to this the week it's run, uh, which is the week of June 23rd, William has a brand new album coming out June 25th called Ready the Astronaut. Make sure you check it out. He's starting to schedule tour dates for 2022, so now would be a good opportunity to make plans to see him live. And uh, you can check him out on all socials at William Fitzsimmons. Thanks again, Will. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Detoxicity. The show is hosted and produced by me, Mike Joseph. Calvin Williams wrote and performed the music you hear at the beginning and end of each episode, and Jacob Block designed the logo. The concept of this show was created by me with inspiration from Jeff Giles and Andrew Grossman. If you'd like to reach out to me to offer feedback, recommend a guest, or guest on the show yourself, feel free to reach out to me via socials. I'm DetoxPodGuy on Instagram, TizMikeJoseph on Twitter. You can also email me, DetoxPod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, stay safe and healthy, and take care of yourselves. Till next time, peace.